You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. This is your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that is happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags to the nation's iconic landscapes, even to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Access Fund. Since 1991, the Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support the Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org or by supporting your local climbing organization. Thanks for joining for this third edition of the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I hope everyone had a good holiday. I know I did. I got to leave the bubble of the Gunnison Valley for a few days and got some city life out in the front range of Colorado and had a good time bumming around the Denver area, hanging out with some family and always good to get that quality family time. That doesn't happen too often these days, so definitely appreciate it when I can. On this month's episode, I got to chat with the stewardship director from the Access Fund, Ty Tyler. I've known Ty for, uh, I think, about three or four years now. He was very helpful getting my LC off the ground, and just a guy who's really just stoked on his work. He's uh, set up pretty well. He's doing the van life thing right now, and he gets to travel around the country meeting with land managers and folks from LCOs at various sites where major stewardship projects are underway, or hopefully will soon be underway. He jokes that he's lucky if he gets to actually put a shovel in the ground or get his hands dirty on a project. He uh, spends a lot of time on conference calls and in meetings with the folks involved in these projects, all while coordinating the logistics for the conservation teams that are traveling around the West Coast and the East Coast and also the national team, traveling all over the country. So he's juggling a lot of things at once. So my hat's off to him for uh, doing such a wonderful job keeping the nation's climbing areas stewarded and cared for. We discussed the growth of the stewardship program that the Access Fund has. It started off as a very small program, and out of necessity, it has grown into something much, much larger with these three teams that travel around the country taking care of all the stewardship work that needs to be done. And some recent success stories, such as the Liberty Bell Project up in Washington and projects happening out in Joe's Valley in Utah. Of course, these success stories don't come with their challenges, which we discussed in length. Of course, they're going to run into some roadblocks along the way, but they figure out ways to get around that. And based on their strong relationship building and building trust with the land agencies, they've been very successful. I was really pumped about this episode, and I hope you are too. Ty is a wealth of information. If you have any stewardship-based questions, he is the man to chat with. So I hope you enjoy my conversation that I had with the Access Fund Stewardship Director, Ty Tyler. Oh, look at that. Yeah, Creepy. the little voice. Yeah, the little voice that was, we were recording. So Creepy. <laughs> but it's a... Yeah, we're, we're live. Boom, we are we're, live. We're live. We are yeah. live. Oh, God. Everybody <laughs> Stand back. I'm doing technology. It doesn't work. Yeah. Why? Watch out. <laughs> um, well, I'm really excited to make this thing happen. We've uh, we've had a few bumps in the road the past few weeks, technical difficulties, vans getting stuck in the mud. Uh, so this, this should be good. I'm really excited to, to chat with you today, Ty. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm jazzed, Peter, and I'd like you doing these podcasts, I think is, is really great. I think these are, you know, I listened to the first two, and I think it's just kind of cool and, and seeing... And having these stories out there, I think, is, is going to be super beneficial because most people don't really know what goes on behind the scenes in order to ensure that like people can go climbing. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is all to bring awareness and help out the Access Fund further its mission to conserve and care for climbing areas. Out of, uh, out of all the, the staff of the Access Fund, I've probably known you the longest and have collaborated, collaborated with you the most over the years. Probably a close tie between you and Zachary, but... You two were integral integral for getting my LCO off the ground here in the Gunnison Valley. So it's just fantastic to have you on the show, and I'm super excited to discuss stewardship. Let's do it. Yeah, I love it. What uh, 
so you haven't been, obviously been with the Access Fund forever. What kind of work were you doing beforehand before you got your position as a stewardship director with the Access Fund? Before, yeah, before the Access Fund, I was working at a regional nonprofit organization based in Seattle, managing a, a really similar stewardship-oriented program. We did uh, some like hiking trail restoration and maintenance, new trail construction, mountain biking, equestrian trails, and trailheads, and then a lot of environmental restoration as well. And really, really similar kind of theme, like let's, let's take care of our, our, our open spaces. Let's make sure that we people can have places to recreate, a lot of that. And I was at that organization for about five years. And then the position here at the Access Fund kind of came up as it was like stewardship program coordinator at, at the start. And um, yeah, just kind of came on. It was it was an awesome opportunity. They sent the job descriptions out. I happened to know Joe Sambatero, who's worked at the organization for almost 10 years. And he kind of forwarded me the, the job application, the, the job you know description. He's like, hey, you should you should apply for this. And, uh, and and here we are today, the, you know, when it finally came down to it, Brady Robinson, our former executive director, is like, hey, do you want to come to Boulder and, and help us take care of climate areas across the country? And, and it was an opportunity you can't really not jump at. Um, for a climber, yeah, of course. And, yeah, for, for a climber and somebody passionate about stewardship, it was it was a pretty easy leap. Yeah, definitely. How long how long ago was that one? Did you start with the Access Fund? Uh, I started in 2012, so I'm coming up on seven years at the organization. And it's, Kind of interesting to reflect upon that now. You know, seeing some of our new staff coming through and 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 coming into the office occasionally, it's 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 like, whoa, I'm actually senior staff, and it's only been seven years. And to see the the climbing community as a whole, and like the number of climbers just over the course of that time frame, really really change. To seeing the access fund program areas kind of come come through and and you know come into some adulthood and just really really starting to excel. I think. It's it's been fun to watch and it's been a fun it's been really fun to be a part of and then just the stewardship program the the program that I'm managing just to, to see that how that's evolved as well and one the demand on the ground and the need on the ground and then also just the support that it gets and and the the notoriety and, and the fact that people are just they're they're jazzed on stewardship and they see it as a real as a real need for for the climbing community and climbing areas as a whole. Uh, what um what is entailed in your position you um. You kind of are responsible for several different areas of the stewardship uh, program with the Access Fund. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what goes on in your day to day? Sure, sure, happy to. I think I think it's really important to kind of like take our actual the, the Access Fund mission, which is you know to keep climate areas open and conserve the climbing environment, is kind of that that big broad statement of this is what we do. And then within that, we have our our six program areas. And the stewardship program, I kind of like separate it out as it has its own little mission statement and it's responsible for the long-term sustainability of, of outdoor climbing areas. So I look at the stewardship program and, and, and the work that I do is really responsible to ensure that quality, you know, like we're always going to have quality and sustainable climbing areas for, you know, current climbers, but then also just the future generation of climbers. And my role is to really kind of step back and be like, okay, what do we need today? But also like, what do we anticipate in five years and 10 years at a lot, at a lot of these climate areas? Um, in order to do my job, a lot of it is based on my development partnerships with the, you know, the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, BLM, state and local agencies, private landowners, and of course our, our network of local climate organizations and climbers themselves. So I have to kind of take a step back, kind of provide some of that long-term view about ecological protection out there, erosion control, what are we going to do about human waste management? I talk a lot about like poop uh, and what we're going to do about it. I talk a lot about I talk a lot about parking, uh, traffic, like a lot of those sorts of things. And as as our use continues to increase and climate becomes more popular, all of those topics are going to continue to be really kind of forefront. Um, you know, our climate areas are some of them are 30 to 40 years old, and uh, they've never really been designed. To handle the amount of use that they're they're granting now, right? Like about 20 years ago, when when a climate site came up, like oh, a couple people went out each weekend. But now, like there's guidebooks out that bring people to these to these destinations in droves, and you know they're not necessarily equipped or designed or laid out or quote unquote built to handle that sort of use. So my role is to really kind of okay, like we did that, we kind of created these spots, but. But now what are we going to do to ensure that they're going to be sustainable long term? So a lot of my role is, is thinking along those lines. So I work a lot 
as kind of a go-between between the like the local climate organizations and the climate community and some of our land managers that are out there, whether they're state or federal or, or local private landowners. You know, one thing, the Access Fund actually owns climbing areas, so we are a land manager in our in our own right. Like we own places like the Homestead in Southern Arizona. So we have um, that understanding of what it means to be a land manager and to manage land and to manage recreation sites, but we're also climbers. So we really have that ability to kind of go between like, hey, like we we get it, climate community. Like these are the things that, that you're seeing you want to take on, but then we can also be like, oh, well, land managers, we get your your angle as well. Like you need to kind of take all of these things into consideration. I wanted to back up real quick um, and mm-hmm. talk about your previous position and how it's assisted you in your current position. Because in your previous position, the one that you were working with in Seattle, that nonprofit in Seattle, you were focusing on several different types of recreation in one area, but now you're now you're kind of doing the opposite, right? You have you have one user, but user group over a much larger scope, much much larger area. How was that? Was that challenging for you at all to make that transition, or did that really assist you making the transition into focusing on one user group over a larger area? I think a little bit of both, right? I think early on, I think you nailed it really well. I think um, the the job I had in, in Seattle was kind of every recreation type for a small landscape, and this one's really climbing specific for the whole country. And I think one of the foundations that I was able to get is like, okay, let's step back and, and look at this from a you know a user group perspective. What are the needs on the ground? And be able to look at like use patterns, right? Like a lot of the stuff that we did early on is like, we're like, okay, well, equestrian trailheads have different different needs than say just a hiking trailhead and having those sorts of perspective was is something really cool for climbing and like climbers use areas very differently than say like a normal hiker or a mountain biker um so having that sort of lens and that ability to kind of adapt that but then also working in that that landscape i i had to work with the u.s forest service i had to work with state parks so working with the different agencies and knowing you know what their needs are and the way that we might be able to speak to them to actually kind of get them to approve some of our work i think those were some of the the core takeaways from that and then also a lot of the work that we did at the, at this other nonprofit was um, ecological restoration work where we actually would go into sites that had been previously kind of whether it was working farmlands that had been abandoned or construction sites that have kind of like gone the wayside and we needed to do restoration work it was it was cool to to kind of take some of that work like okay let's remove invasive species and plant native species and i think some of our climate areas we don't actually think about that to to a large extent but it's actually quite prevalent um a lot of our sites have denuded some of the native species so that we actually need to go back in and, and replant them to help them bounce back um, a lot of our sites nowadays are kind of at the point where it's no longer like preemptive work. We are now doing like restoration work at some of these sites. It's been yeah, more reactionary. Yeah, exactly. We're kind of going in. We're like, oh, okay, like now it's been it's been kind of beat up, and now we really need to go in and do restoration work so that we can help it bounce back to you know closer to what it originally looked like and what the ecological systems were like originally before climbers got there. We'll never get it back 100% because we're still going to climb at these sites, but we could take we could take some of our climbing like or kind of bring back some of that natural environment setting, which made the place so compelling at the beginning and actually kind of bring some of that back to, to the fold. Um, so bouncing between the, the organizations, I think one thing that I, I really struggled with with the one landscape was that it was the same partners all the time. And it was one of those things where I'm like always waiting for that partner, always waiting for the same partner. Where now that the stewardship program for the access fund is nationwide, I'm not really sitting there like twi- I, there's no twiddling of my thumbs ever waiting for someone else because there's so many projects and there's so many climbing areas spread out. There's never a dull moment. And I think, you know, this other nonprofit waiting for some of the, the our partner organizations to come on board was kind of kind of frustrating to a certain degree. And you're like, geez, this is going to take forever where now there's so much going on. It's like it's it's kind of easy to get like, oh, I'm just so distracted. There's so many other things. And then you get an email. and You're like, oh, sweet. Uh, now let's jump back in on this one project that I haven't visited in a couple of months. Um, so I think it was, it's fun that way, and, it, and I think having all of those, um, having all of those, all of these projects spread out has been has been has been entertaining, but also just um, a way to kind of keep things moving and not having to get bored or frustrated with like partners or something like that. There's definitely never never a dull moment, um, and I think that was a surprise to me because I was like, oh, it's climbing, like it's how 
how intense could it possibly be? But uh, just, you know, the seven years of the Access Fund, I am blown away at how constantly busy our world is. And, it, and you, you know, from a, it's, a, it's a climbing thing, but the, the amount of work and the amount of climbing areas and the, the, just the sheer busyness of it all is, is, somewhat, is somewhat kind of overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about the conservation teams that you that you manage and work with, um, can you provide some more detail on those? We chatted about them with Joe in the last episode, and he provided a great background on the teams. But since you are the overarching director of these few teams, uh, can you provide a little more background and shed some light on their work? Absolutely. Yeah, I think Joe did a great job covering kind of like the program and uh, and some of the bare bones of it. I think I think it's important to take a step back and, and think about the climbing community as a whole and our our history with stewardship. We, we've always done stewardship as a community. I mean, I think you know, I'm, I'm in the office today and, and this week, and I'm actually looking at some of our old Vertical Times articles, and it's amazing to see how the stewardship efforts go back 20 plus years. And it's That's really awesome. cool to think about. Yeah, it's really cool to think about the, the adopt a crag program started 20 years ago. And as, cli- as the climate community, we, we've always done stewardship work and we've always done the work to kind of steward our climate areas. But I think something that everyone was starting to see was the climate community, popula- like the popularity was growing. So the impacts were growing at the same time. And the adopt a crag pro- program was only scratching the surface for the needs. And it wasn't necessarily the best way to, to provide some of the technical skills and, and expertise to steward these areas. Um, we've done, you know, doing graffiti removal is an amazing thing. Picking up trash is a great thing, but it, it doesn't build a technical like or a really sound stone structure, like a staircase or something like that. And in order to prevent erosion in some of these sites, that's what's needed. So the Access Fund, like right before my, before my time, kind of saw that early on and they actually had... Um, we had a contract kind of guy rolling around the country. His name was Jim Angel, and he did a lot of historic work. And it's cool to go back to some of those sites and be like, oh, Jim Angel built this. And he had his own style and his own, and his own personality. And it was, it was, it was, it's cool to see some of that work and hear some of his stories. And it was, he was kind of like the first conservation team. And then um, we finally launched the, the official program in, in 2011 uh, with one team and with a pure, like, easy, simple statement of like, okay, the conservation team is here to lead and inspire the climate community toward volunteerism and stewardship. And that was kind of like the core of it, like this is what we want to do. And we launched it, it was, you know, a large part due to some critical tit- our title, our title sponsorship from Jeep. Um, and then also like we've been able to kind of bring on a bunch of other supporting sponsors from La Sportiva, Thermarest, Yeti, REI, Cliff and Yakima. And these folks, like these, these brands are critical in keeping the, the conservation team rolling. Um, so we launched it in 2011 with, with a bunch of sponsorships and a bunch of stuff. And it was kind of like, okay, let's, let's actually do, do some stewardship work. Let's lead and inspire the community toward volunteerism, stewardship, and provide that technical expertise. Um, the team early on was very much like come in and just get a ton of good work done, showing the land managers that we could do technical work and we could do it at a high, higher standard than, than maybe just a simple volunteer event. And just building a lot of that trust, one with the, the community, like, hey, we're climbers, but we're also going to do some of this, this technical work as well. And then also proving to land managers that the access fund is here and we're here as a resource and we're here to help. Um, so nowadays, like now, several years later, we're coming into our, our seventh year of the program. Um, we have three teams. We have a national team, an east and a west team. And we saw kind of something happen early on was that as soon as the team hit the ground, the demand was just way too high. One team wasn't enough to fulfill the needs at the climate areas, much like Adopticrags were. It was like, okay, like there's a lot of need on the ground. And if you step back and you think about, say, a climbing area like Indian Creek or Tensley for the Red River Gorge, there's, it's not just one climbing area, right? There's 40 some odd different crags or whatever the case may be. And each one of those needs technical work. And there's no way that that's going to get done with just a simple Adopticrag each year from the LCO or something like that. These are, these are, projects that really need some in-depth technical expertise, leadership, and an ability to do the work over the long term. Um, so we kind of brought on these two additional teams for these long-term initiatives, doing leadership, technical, you know, technical work, full rebuilds of climbing sites from the, from the ground up. Um, I think it's really important to kind of talk about the, the models themselves, and then, and then I could talk a little bit about how it, how I kind of, how it kind of works. Um, our national team, we have a CT national, 
they're in a new place almost every single weekend, visiting a new climate community each week. They're doing very outreach oriented program where they kind of go to a climbing gym, talk about stewardship, talk about the access fund, talk about the local climate organization that they're working with, talking about the site that's there. They do workshops uh, for technical tra trail skills, that sort of thing. And then they always host an adopt a crag. And it's very much like this, hey, we're here to kind of lead and inspire to get you all motivated to kind of do stewardship work and to continue on. Like your, cl your climbing area needs help and we need you to help us do that work. So, and for that program, it's, it's basically just a, it's a schedule, right? Like it's hiring them and making sure that they're they're going to have the skill sets that are going to go out there, and then also how they speak to the community about volunteerism and stewardship. But most of it's just putting really a really good calendar together. And so, like I start that in the fall. So right now, I'm really deep in on the conservation team national schedule for the year. I have it pretty much booked through the end of June already. And this is me reaching out to local climate organizations, local climate communities, if they, even if they don't have an LCO, land managers and saying like, hey, like let's, let's put together a project and just getting it on their radar, getting it on the calendar. And then that way we can kind of start to put the pieces together between now and then. And so a lot of that is just like shooting out an email saying, hey, like we did this project last year, let's continue on. We've, we've worked in, you know, your climate area for the last three years, let's continue doing that. Or, hey, like you, your community has never had a conservation team visit. Let's fix that. Let's get your community a, a visit from, from the conservation team national. Let's organize a gym visit and get them out there in front of the community and, and get some excitement for their project. Um, so it's, it's, it's a fun thing to put together and do some outreach and, and talk to partners across the country, right? Like, like Peter, you and I should work on, on getting a conservation team visit at some point. Um, I think it, it would be, be a ton of fun. And for our national team, it's, it's, it's really about like weather and driving and how that's going to best fit out. Like I can't have them drive from coast to coast, but what I do is I usually have them follow like the climbing weather and the climbing circuit, right? Like they start in the Southwest in the, in the winter, and then they go clockwise around the whole country. And then they end their term like in the fall in the Southeast. So it's kind of like following the best climbing weather, right? Like they're in, they're in Wyoming in the summer when everybody's in Wyoming in the summer. And that's, that's strategic so that they can leverage when people, when climbers are at those destinations to get them to volunteer. We tried to, we, we did a lot of things early on that didn't exactly work. We're like, oh, well, let's bounce them around back and forth. And then it was like, well, that just doesn't work. They're spending too much time driving. Um, right. Like going from, going from the Red River Gorge to Indian Creek is not necessarily the most efficient way to, to, to do, to do like a national program. Um, but following kind of the same circuit every year is, is a lot easier. And it's also easier for some of the LCO partners so that they can plan for it. Um, like, oh, like, yeah, we're totally going to come through every fall. So plan on something every fall with the conservation team. Right. So that's the, that's the national model. And then we have our east and our west, which are much more project-based. They're long-term initiatives. This is like our conservation team east and our conservation team west. And these programs, these teams are in an area from three weeks to three months. And they're putting in deep investment, deep time, really making a difference at the climbing area. They're building, you know, the site from ground up saying, okay, like, let's take trail, trail A from the parking lot to the crag and let's rebuild that whole entire thing. Where our national team kind of comes in for a, a, like a smaller project, these teams are there working alongside volunteers week in and week out, making a huge difference. And um, most of the time, like these projects are, two years in the making, two to three years in the making. We have to work with some of our federal partners to kind of do some of the approval processes, raise money, uh, whether it's through grants or fundraising initiatives, uh, and then also work on a lot of agreements. Like, okay, like we're gonna also bring in an AmeriCorps crew to work alongside them. And so it's kind of putting those agreements together, making sure that the AmeriCorps program is ready to go as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, so like the, the East and the West teams are very much the, hey, let's, let's rebuild this site from the ground up but while we're doing that, ensure that the community, once the project is done, the community has the skill sets to maintain it for the long haul. It's like, okay, they're, build, they're learning how to build stone staircases, so they're definitely going to know how to maintain them. And that way, it's, 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 we can kind of build these sites, get them up to a high standard, and then go to the next climate area because there's, there's just so much need out there. Yeah, empowering the communities to take care of it themselves afterwards, that's the most sustainable model and provide the longest longevity, right, for these areas. I mean, can't just yeah. go in there, not train them, and expect them to carry that forward after you leave. You got to leave right. some empowerment with them, right? Right. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's their, it's their climate area. It's like, it's their local crag. And, and for us, it's like, Hey, like we can come in and we can kind of do that like quote unquote capital investment and do the bulk of the work. But, but long, long term, like it's, it's, it's going to be on those community members to continue to volunteer and to continue to steward those sites. And while the team is there, our goal is to really kind of get those folks the skill sets that they need, like whether it's the local climate organization or just the local community or even the land manager, so that they know how to kind of continue that moving forward once the team leaves. Correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm misunderstanding. There's there's some situations where you actually reach out to community about doing work instead of vice versa. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, occasionally, occasionally, like it's it's most of the time at this point, like. We kind of know where a lot of the, the spots are that, that need some of this essential work. And we're like, okay, well, we're definitely going to hit those. Um, but then there's other communities that we kind of like have maybe like maybe we've met somebody while climbing. And they're like, oh, it'd be really cool to like have a conservation team visit. And, and that's kind of how it starts. Gotcha. And then so, okay. And then, and then we'll do an outreach and we'll be like, hey, like, let's do a project um, for you guys. Like we just did a, we did a regional summit this past April. And one of the attendees was um, – was from a Pennsylvania area and he shot me an email like, Oh, it's like, it was, you know, super psyched. Love doing, love coming to the summit. Um, it'd be really, really cool. Like we, we could use, you know, we could use more access from the sport. And I was like, well, let's just do a conservation team visit and like, let's get that going. And so mm-hmm. now it's on the calendar for like this fall out in Pennsylvania. And we're just it's like, that's cool. And it's, so there's spots that kind of request it, but a lot of the time it's like, well, Hey, like let's, let's do some outreach. Maybe they don't even know that they need a conservation team visit or know that that's available. And a lot of times that's the case is like, they don't necessarily know that it's available. Oh, um, especially, that's especially just, yeah. that surprises me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a program that everybody knows is, is out there and they, they know that it's, that it's, but sometimes folks are like, well, our climate area is just kind of a small one. And it's like, well, no, like, but it's important to you. So the national team should totally come in. Um, mm-hmm. And then if there is that long-term need, like, okay, actually your climate areas, you know, needs a lengthy sort of, project and a lot of work and a bigger initiative then we're like okay let's talk about that let's talk about how we can get one of the regional teams there and what that would look like um but I think, yeah it all starts with just kind of outreach and i think a lot of people are like oh i figured the conservation team was 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 already booked out or our climate area was too small or or we're in you know we're in wisconsin so no one cares it's like no well we care and the conservation team program cares um and the access fund cares so it's like this is important and we need to we need to support you just like we support everywhere else no crag is too big or too small, right? No, no crag is too big or too small. Yeah, yeah I'm right. <laughs> uh, we, you and I, have kind of joked before about how you are very much the logistical runner here on the back end. You're not really out very often, swinging tools, putting shovels in the ground, and you're actually lucky to get out. Um, and we joked, as you move up, you move in, move into the office, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, but you're set up really well to be able to be mobile and travel around to these areas. You're living the, the van life, right? You work remotely or, or mobily, your wife works remotely too. Um, so you are able to be present at some of these events and these, and these projects. And I think that's, that's great and very important to have your presence scattered in there, sprinkled in there every now and then. Yes. It's fun. Like everybody's like, Oh, you're, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I, we live full time on the road. We, we live in our, in our sprinter van. We're like those, you know, those, those dirt <laughs> bag climbers and, and that sort of thing. And, and I think, and it, it's, it's a ton of, it's a ton of fun. I'm not going to lie. Um, but it's also a ton of work to kind of, to kind of do that. But I'm trying to really leverage that to, so that I can see a lot of these climate areas for me, like you know, we talked about, it's like a lot of the logistics behind the scene, but for me, in order to do some of those logistics, I need to know what the site looks like and what the needs are at the site so that I can talk to the land manager about it or talk to the local climate organization about what, what those needs are and how we can, how we can fulfill them and how we can kind of better steward that area. So live in a van is, is, is awesome. It's like, I get to bounce around to these sites. I get to build the relationships that are really essential, both with the community and with the land managers. They get to see my face, which is way better than being on a phone call with them. And so I get to see some of these sites and I can kind of help prioritize where some of the efforts should go. It's like, oh, geez, this site really, really needs the work. And this one, yeah, it needs it, but maybe not right away. And uh, so bounce, bouncing around is great. Um, I t- try to leverage that everywhere I go, whether it's, you know, stopping by the local climate gym and talking to folks or, hey, like the local climate organizations having one of their board meetings. I'm like, well, I'll stop by. Like, why not? Um, and just 
do some of those sorts of things. There's a fundraiser event or, or something like that. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't swing the tool as much as I used to. Like, yeah, exactly. Like you move up and all of a sudden you're management, quote unquote, and <laughs> you don't get to, you don't get to do the quote unquote, the, the grunt work anymore. And, and to a certain degree, that's fine. Right. Like my back loves that. Um, but, <laughs> but every time I get to go to say like, go you know, visit with the conservation teams or I'm in a community and they happen to be doing an adopt a crack, like, I'm out there and I'm, and it's so much fun for me to like jump in and, and, and build something and play in the dirt or just, or help them through their event or whatever the case may be. And, and yeah, for me, like it's a ton of fun, like looking at spreadsheets and looking at emails and, and sitting on conference, conference calls and, and it's super rewarding, but sometimes it's getting in the dirt is, is a ton of fun too. Of course. I, I, I love spreadsheets. I'm, just, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of a spreadsheet nerd. <laughs> um, so I, I totally hear you. It can be rewarding, but uh yeah, like I've I've gotten get outside a lot with my work this past summer working with uh, my local land trust in Crested Butte and doing a mixture of the outside work and inside work. It's, it provides a nice balance. You're not killing yourself outside. So you get to spend some time inside, but also sitting behind the computer all day. It can be a drag as well. So there's a fine yeah. balance there. Yeah, there's a fine balance. And, and the work that I'm like, what's great is the work that I'm doing is, is a ton of fun. Uh, right. Know, sitting on a sitting on a conference call is usually kind of dull, but when you're talking about like how are we going to better take care of this climate area, like that's actually kind of fun. And like when partners get on get invested in that, it's it's awesome. Like to be like the Forest Service, is like let's do this, and they're ready to commit like some of their resources, or the LCO is really excited. And I think a lot of those times, a lot of those conference calls, like I come away and I come away energized um, and ready to, and ready to do like do the do the work that needs to get done. Not mm-hmm. all the time, right? Some of them it's like banging your head against the wall, but a lot of the other, but most, but most of them are are really, are really really positive. I think a lot of our our partners are 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 supportive of the work and actually doing the work. I think it's just, it's just one of those process things. Yeah, right. Well, that's a perfect segue. Speaking of partners, you obviously know a ton about land management and working with land managers, whether that be the BLM, Forest Service, Park Service, or uh, a, a state. Um, agency or, or a county entity, on every level you have collaborated with some kind of land management entity. What uh, what differences have you seen, or what approaches do you feel like you need to take with these different entities? Are there are there challenges with each one of those, or advantages to working with each one of those? Can you touch on that at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to say that there's there's not an advantage to any any one of the agencies. I think. You know, whether it's a state park or the U.S. Forest Service or the National Park Service, I think, you know, they they all have their intricacies and they all have their beasts that you kind of have to, to get through in order to get your foot in the door. Uh, what I find that the the most consistent thing is, is is this work is based on relationships and individuals. You know, no, no matter what, there's someone that has to kind of sign off on a document, uh, whether it's a NEPA document or a SEPA document, which is a state environmental policy act sort of thing, those those folks, they're having a relationship with them is 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 the number one thing. Um, and for me, it's 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 building that relationship, building that trust, with, so that they trust you, showing them that you're committed, that you have a shared vision with them, and then being able to consistently bring resource and and like showing up repetitively goes a long long way. Um, I think a lot of our a lot of our folks just kind of come in and be like, hey, we want to fix this one thing. Like, let us do it like next week. And it's like, well, they don't generally work that way. Whether mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't matter what agency it is. I mean, they don't necessarily work the way of like, oh, cool. Yeah, go ahead and do this thing. Because most of the time with, with a local climate organization, like if they go into, say, a Forest Service district office, if it's a new relationship and they don't know who you are, there's no trust there. So they don't know what you know, what you're trying to do, what the real concern is, like you're brand new to it. They don't know what resources you can bring to the table, whether or not you're going to consistently show up. You're just kind of a new player on the, on the street. And in order to get some of that stuff done, like it takes a while. It's, it's, it's patience and it's persistence and it's, it's building those relationships. Um, like it's taken me years to build some of the relationships that I have with forest service districts. Like, taken five years to kind of build really good relationships with the forest service and BLM out in, out in Joe's Valley. But now, you know, the forest service guy showed text messages me on the weekend 
and he's just like, hey, like we saw like the, the trail project that was done out there. It was so awesome. Or, oh, hey, we're going to do this thing. Can you help us spread the message to the climbing community? Um, or, hey, let's talk about going in on a grant together. But our first meeting was very much like, well, who are you? Like, Ty, who are you and why should we even trust you? Um, mm-hmm. So it go, it really, really goes into that. I think a lot of a lot of climbing communities, a lot of a lot of folks that want to do stewardship projects, they go into the office. And the first thing that they hear is, is the land manager say no. And I find that that no is really not necessarily a no, never. It's more of a not right now. I need a little bit more information. I don't exactly know who you are. So let's kind of keep our, let's keep building our relationship. And I just need a little bit more information about what you really want to do here. And so, it, and that's a start. So I think usually when I go into, go into a, my first kind of introductory meeting or, or discussion, I ask a ton of questions. Like I sit there and I'm like, Hey, like what's going on in your forest right now? Like what, what are the big priorities do you have? Like, do you even have your, some of your key staff positions? We all know that the, the federal land management agencies are seeing their budgets cut. So they don't necessarily have all the staffing that they need in order to do their job to manage these lands. Um, or maybe they're just coming off a really crazy fire season that all of their staff are kind of like fighting fires and there's no way that they're going to be like, Oh, let's talk about a climbing area right now. Yeah, or, definitely. Yeah. Or maybe they've been planning this really, uh, this really huge new trail system that, you know, 10 years ago they started planning for, and now they're actually at the implementation stage for it. So it's really hard for them to, to pivot really quickly and be like, Oh, okay, cool. Let's, let's jump in on this other thing. Um, so I think, you know, having that, that understanding going into the office and talking to the land managers or, or, the private landowners and be like, Hey, like what's going on? Like what's, what's going on in your district? What's going on in your forest? What's, are there ways that we can help? Uh, a lot of the times, like maybe they have a maintenance project for a trail that climbers use. And before we kind of get off to our climber trail, like maybe we can help them do maintenance on that thing. Or maybe they're having a graffiti problem nearby and, you know, climbers have seen that for a long time, but again, it's, it's about building trust. And it's like, well, Hey, we'll do a graffiti removal project if, if it means it's, you know, we're going to build good relationship here. And I think it's, it's starting off small and it's finding ways that you can kind of work together early on and, and kind of just continually showing up and showing that you're committed and that you have resources to give and that you're, you're understanding of their shortfalls. Yeah. I'm really glad you, you touched on all that about relationship building and trust. Joe, Andy and I spoke about that in the previous episode and I just got a feeling it's going to be a reoccurring theme in subsequent episodes from here on out because it's so incredibly important. And being able to walk into the office and offer your help instead of demanding help with your project is going to speak volumes in establishing that trust and relationship. Um, yeah. I guess earlier when I mentioned uh, advantages, I think I was thinking along the lines of multiple use agencies versus non-multiple use, meaning like BLM Forest Service versus National Park Service, where they don't work with extractive industries or extractive uses on their land like the BLM Forest Service does. What kind of uh, competing uses have you run into in the past when advocating for our user group? Oh, I think, you know, those sorts of things, like the, the some of the extractive industries, like I think of some of our, some of our West, Western climbing areas, but actually some of our Eastern climate areas as well. Like there's, you know, there's oil, there's active oil extraction going on or active coal extracted going on at the same time. And, and in some of those, some of those areas, it's, it's a super happy, you know, they're, they're going, they're getting along just fine, I think. But sometimes I think as, as climbers, we don't necessarily think about maybe like how our use might affect their use. Right. I think there's a perfect example is, is Joe's Valley. There's, um, a potential coal mine kind of up one of the forks that they may or may not reopen at some point. But we went out there and we did a, did a visit with the, the company that owns that coal mine. And they were talking about, Oh, well, climbers parking on the side of the road here is probably going to be kind of dangerous. If all of a sudden we have all these coal trucks bombing up and down the road. And, you know, we were all kind of like, Oh, geez, didn't even think of that. And that's, you know, has real potential um, to kind of have some safety concerns, but also, Oh, okay. Like as we think about this area long term, we should think about better parking for climbers and how to keep them off the road, and how did that, you know, how that we could, so that we can kind of work together in that sort of a thing. A lot of our western climate areas, there's a lot of ranch land that kind of goes along with that. And like one of the key things is like, hey, everybody close close the gates. Like if you're if you're going through a, a gate and like people don't want their like ranchers don't want their cattle to just run 
run wild. So it's like if you're driving through a gate, you found it closed, make sure you close it behind you. Mm-hmm. And th- like some of that stuff is really simple and, and uh, a lot of us think of it, but, but that's like an education thing at the end of the day. Um, I think like the Red River Gorge, like there's active oil wells right, you know, throughout a lot of these climbing areas and we're basically climbing right next to oil rigs. And that's not problematic because it, it's the Red River Gorge and it's some of the best climbing in, in the country. And people flood to that place and there's extractive industry right there alongside of it. So I think, um, you know, and a lot of those land managers, you know, like the forest service or, or the BLM, and they have that kind of like, okay, well, we do have to include all these other user groups. And some, sometimes that kind of slows down the process a little bit, but at the same time, it really kind of brings everybody together. And I think, you know, as, as any user group kind of, thinks about their area they usually think about it from their perspective and i think that's where like the public process the public planning process is super valuable because it it brings it has everybody has their opportunity to have a say and if like we didn't know about the coal company potentially opening that sort of a thing and all of a sudden like we wouldn't necessarily think about that parking and then we would potentially have a safety concern so mm-hmm. i think having you know having that 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 public process that NEPA process is is really important i think you know, being able to have a say and, you know, say whether or not a new coal company or a new coal mine opens or a new mountain bike kind of comes in or there's a timber harvest. I think having that ability is, is really, is really cool. And it's, it's a really important process because it, it gives us an opportunity to have a say in somebody else's kind of way of doing things, but also our way as well. Of course, it's so important for us and everyone else to kind of step out of their silos, right? And, be able to talk to each other. I think maybe maybe I'm naive, but we have more in common than we think. We all want oh absolutely same like I'm maybe more along like from recreation group to recreation group, climbers, bikers, uh, equestrian folks. We all love the environment that we're playing in. So at the end of the day, we're all aiming for the same thing and wanting a healthy environment, but or uses might be butting heads, but be able to sit down and work those out is just is so imperative. And I've seen it be successful and working through that process is, is huge. Yeah. And it, at the end of the day, it usually ends up providing a better experience. So right. it's, you know, whether like if you're like, oh, hey, like, let's don't put your mountain bike trail here. Maybe like if you move it over here, like that way, there's not a use conflict, right? Like where say like the mountain bikers and the equestrians and the climbers don't all of a sudden collide at one spot. Like, well, mm-hmm. it's great. And that, and that that only happens if you're all have the ability to kind of have a, have a say or play a role in that process. Um, same thing with like, you know, with, with some of the extractive industries, it's, it's like, Oh, actually, you know what? Like we're okay with like an oil rig. Like it's okay for the, with an oil rig right here, but if you put one here, like that's really going to potentially affect our access to it, to a site. Um, all of a sudden, like if you put in, put in a new road right here, like, Oh, that actually might destroy some of our boulders. And, there's an opportunity of like, well, if you just move the road by like 30 feet, then it won't really affect our access or something like that. With the park service, like they're much more like human and, and recreation based. So it's, it's, um, it's a little bit easier to kind of have that conversation with them, but they're also really, really, really charged with protecting the resources for the long haul. So it's, they can't necessarily just put trails everywhere that we want trails to go. And they have to really kind of be like, well, that's, how is that going to affect the future of this, you know, of Yosemite Valley? or uh, New River, National River, or something like that. Like, we can't just assume just because they're more recreation and human-based that everything that they do is just going to cater to everything. Um, right. I think that's, yeah, that's another thing to kind of keep in mind as well. Like, I find that, I find that the each one, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the people that are, that are in, those, in those offices and, and in those positions that kind of help the process along and they can, whether or not they, if they approve something or not approve something, they at least can really provide a good, this is why. Um, and I think that that's kind of, it's an important part that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. Yep. Of course. What other, so you got a trail project in mind. What other aspects or elements do you need to consider before you start cutting trail, such as wildlife habitat or endangered species we mentioned um, invasive species or native species earlier. Um, anything else that you need to consider before you start doing any work? 
I think one of them is how big is how big of a project are we talking about? If it's just, you know, a simple kind of one day sort of a thing, like, oh, there's probably not as much to think about. It's more of a, you know, well, let's put the stone staircase in. It's really kind of cool. But some of these larger initiatives, there's a host of things to think about. You know, I think of, um, say, just for instance, like Red Rocks Canyon in, in, in Nevada. And you think about that site as, as a stewardship. That's an initiative, right? There's no way to kind of fix some of the social trail problems that are out there, the net, the, the braided network, the human waste problems. There's no way to do that with just one event. Um, that's a multi-year sort of initiative that's not only just some of the trail work, but it's also some of the human waste. It's signage, it's parking, and that kind of brings in everything. And that's where you do have to really kind of consider these cultural resources, these natural resources, like are there endangered plant species? Are there endangered you know, lizards in, in the area? Or like, are we kind of going through a, a cultural site or something like that? So all of those have to kind of kind of be considered. We aren't the only user group out there. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, how does this affect other trail users? You know, are we going to all of a sudden get a bunch of hikers that are out on these climber trails when they probably shouldn't be because they're out there in their flip-flops or what have you? And, or they're not necessarily prepared for an experience on a climber trail. Um, so I think, you know, from that perspective, we, th those, all of those sorts of things need to be need to be considered and i think what is the priority a lot of the time it's like okay well what how do we prioritize individual projects on a trail and it's sitting back and be like okay well how do climbers use this or how does how does a user group use this like okay like a hundred percent of people are going to pass through you know leave the trailhead and hit this first part of the trail and then as soon as they get to the first spur that's when you start kind of separating out like oh 20 percent of the climbers are going to go this way 20 percent are going to go this way and so on and then it's how do you prioritize those different zones beyond that? Um, that's kind of, it's, an, it's another one of those things like, okay, well, like how do we prioritize our projects? What's going to give us the most bang for our buck? What is the biggest priority as far as impact and restoration work? Is it the 513 that only five people visit each weekend? Or is it the 59 that 100 people visit each weekend? And it's usually like, okay, well, maybe the 59 area needs a little bit more stewardship attention than the 513. But maybe not. Maybe the 513, yeah, but maybe that 513 staging area is on a steep slope and it's really getting blown out where the 591 is on a slab. Um, so it's, 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 it's considering a lot of those, those different aspects and those different parameters. Yeah. And I'm sure there's like, yeah, cultural sites and archaeological sites that also need to be considered as well. You know, those are, you know, first thing that comes to mind is Bears Ears and Indian Creek. There's some routes that you're literally standing right next to like an archaeological site. And it's yeah. they got it yeah. kind of closed off in a way, but it's still present. Um, I'm sure you've had to navigate those as well. So it's uh, some point in the past. Yeah, there's 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 a host of those, and like a lot of times we don't necessarily think about, it, but like the Happy Boulders and 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 the Sads and Bishop. Like there's a ton of cultural resources that are right out there. And Indian Creek is a prime example. Um, Waco Tanks in in Texas is a, you know one of those prime examples, but also. Um, for cultural resources, so is the Red River Gorge. The Daniel Boone National Forest has a lot of like um, overhangs that are actually ancient shelters. Mm -hmm. And then, so there's so there's the cultural angle, but then there's also the, the environmental angle. And I think of you know some areas that might have a rare salamander that's like an endangered species that lives in climbing areas or lives in like lives on cliffs, or maybe there's a rare lichen species. And and we don't necessarily think about that stuff because we're like we're going climbing, like look how rad that cliff is, but those are natural communities that are there and we need to kind of respect those and, and also acknowledge them that they are an important part of it. Um, I think a, another aspect that we haven't really talked about is, is, is funding some of this work, right? It's not free. Um, you know, our conservation team national is kind of covered by, by sponsorships, but the regional teams are like, this is large, these are large scale initiatives that take a lot of funding. And, you know, that's one of the many things that we kind of need to consider as well. It's like, well, how are we going to fund the work at the long, at the long haul? Is it, is it just one small grant or are we going to have to come up with five different grants together and then go to the climbing community and do a fundraising campaign and then go to the land manager and ask them to kick in things as well. And I think, you know, that's one of those other aspects that we really need to consider is what is the matrix of, of funding that's going to kind of accomplish this project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not free. There's no such thing. No. Yeah, free labor here. <laughs> right, right, um, right. What are, uh, segueing a little bit, what are a couple of recent um, big projects you've been working on? I know you've been, you were out east when we talked talked a few weeks ago, and now you're in Colorado today and through the weekend. Now you're heading out uh, further out west to the, 
to the Southwest region. Any other uh, big projects that come to mind that you've been working on in the past year or so? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one that's really worth kind of highlighting and, and you know, kind of took in everything we talked about is, is the Joe's Valley project that we just wrapped up our second year of doing trail and infrastructure work. Um, for those folks that aren't familiar, Joe's Valley is an international bouldering destination in, in a fairly rural area of Utah, and it's been climbed for people in the climbing there for years and years and years. It got really popular about 10 to 12 years ago, and then even more so over the last several years. And there's, you know, a ton of erosion kind of at the base of the, the boulders, a lot of social social trails and a big human waste problem. And the local communities there were really starting to get concerned about human waste in their water supply. And this is a water supply that they use for irrigation for, you know, plants, but then also for their, for their ranching and then also their drinking water at the end of the day. And, they, you know, there was some major concerns. So we did started to pull together a group uh, five years ago at this point with the U.S. Forest Service, the BLM, the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, and Emory County, and just start talking about Joe's Valley as a whole. And over the last five years, we were able to kind of actually finally come up with a really good plan, um, put funding mechanisms together to where there's now several vault toilets that have recently been installed out there over the last year. Um, both the Forest Service and BLM have invested in, in that area. Um, just I think last month they actually did some preemptive grading for a new campground that they're going to put out there, expanded kind of an old site that's a lot like the the PV pit in um, in Bishop for camping. And we've done a ton of trail work. And now they're actually going to put some new signage out. We're going to put some new kiosks up. And it's it's been a huge success story, but it's taken that long period of time. And a lot of the popular bouldering sites are already seeing improvements. Um, we're starting to see like, oh, easy easy to find walk-offs, like, oh, there's a stone staircase right there. Obviously, that's the walk-off. I shouldn't go over here and cause more erosion. Um, we're putting in a sustainable trail system so that it's a little bit easier for folks to kind of go through versus just bushwhacking through the woods. Um, so it's containing our impacts, kind of providing a really good experience and, and setting Joe's Valley up for the long haul for the future. Um, I think that's been one of, one of the great ones. It's one of the, that, that area is one of the first kind of like motivating places places that were like we need to bring on a conservation team so that they can fix joe's valley uh and here we are five you know seven years later finally getting to that but five years since we kind of really started that process um another one that's kind of like we've kind of just wrapped up our first phase it's very very different is a, a liberty bell initiative up in washington state at washington pass there are these these granite spires liberty bell group here's these historic places where you know becky kind of went out fred becky went out and did some of the original routes back in back in the 60s and, and the, the early 70s before there was even a highway that kind of went over that pass. But, but now there are these premier alpine cragging destinations for, well, for a lot of folks, but, you know, a lot of Washington folks. Like every aspiring Washington alpine climber goes to the Liberty Bell groups and, and does, you know, one or several or all of the routes that are up there. So it's, you know, uh, in a set in an alpine environment, a really sensitive area. There's a lot of, you know, alpine plant life that has a really short growing season. And because of that, you know, taking out some, some of those plants, you're basically destroying that, that environment a little bit. And because it's been used historically without any sort of like stewardship work or maintenance work, there's just, there was miles of social trails out there, just people getting lost on the way up, kind of up, lost on the way down, taking a new way up uh, than they did on the way down. It's, it was kind of chaos out there. So we worked with the foresters would be like, hey, like let's let's steward this area. Let's set it up so that it can continue to handle the visitation out there while protecting the alpine environment. So we sent the conservation team out. They did a initial scoping and project proposal to the Forest Service. They took it through their, their NEPA process to make sure that it, we weren't gonna damage any rare plant species or come across any cultural sites. They kind of approved our general game plan and then we went to the climbing community in, in Washington predominantly and asked them to help pay for the work. And you know, we worked with Joe and the Washington Climbers Coalition a ton out there and the groups like Mazamas and, and the American Alpine Club and, and came together with this, with this huge initiative. And we were able to raise you know, $100,000 just from the climbing community itself with a couple of small grants and then a, an outside grant from the, the National Forest Foundation to put the conservation team there for two months this, summer, this past summer and then two months next summer to really improve that site, come up with one sustainable route that climbers can easily find, easily navigate, 
it doesn't take away, like it's not a hiking trail. It is still a climber access route. It is still technical, still provides that challenge, maintains that character so it doesn't feel dumbed down or anything like that. But it's an easy way to follow Right. Most of them, most climbers just want to get up there. They want to get to their climb and have a good experience, but then also not really get lost on the way down. But then at the same time, close all of those other un, unused or not unused, but redundant social trails and make sure that we do some seeding out there so that they can actually regrow some native species and do a host of restoration out there. So it's, it's a cool one. We're, we're, we're excited that like how well it's going. We're thrilled that like next year we go back for two more months out there. We're bringing in AmeriCorps crews that are out there. Uh, a lot of local climbing groups are going to come out and do some support out there. We had a we had a youth group kind of come out as well, like a high school group come out and do about a whole week out there. And it's just an opportunity for the whole entire Washington community to kind of come together and steward one of their treasured one of their treasured areas. And it's been a great partnership with the U.S. Forest Service. And now we can kind of use that model in other sites. It's like, well, if we can do this at Liberty Bell, like, why can't we do this at Rumney? Or why can't we do this in the Daniel Boone? And, and we're starting to see those sorts of projects lead to new opportunities as well. That's so awesome. I'm so inspired by the work you guys do and everything that's put at the forefront before you before you start a project and the partnerships and the money you get raised. When you said that you raised 100000 just from the climbing community and grants on top of that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had a couple of, like, really special people that gave us larger gifts. Um, we also had like the Mountaineers community organization gave us funding, the Zamas, like a lot of those, a lot of those regional groups kind of came together as well because they're like, well, we go to Liberty Bell. We take our members out to Liberty Bell. We should totally kind of kick in and like just kind of pulling that community together. And then also, and then just asking the, the, like the climbers themselves, like, Hey, give us 20 bucks. Like you go out there, you, you have a great experience at Washington Pass. Give us 20 bucks and you know, it'll, we'll put it together with everybody else's. Um, I think a lot of these stewardship initiatives, I think one of the biggest pulls is, is you know, the Access Fund and, and the local climate organization can kind of go in and say, hey, you know what, if if we can get $1 from here, I bet you we can get three. I bet you if you give me $1, I can turn it into three. And we can kind of leverage a lot of those resources together and kind of pull these these initiatives together. And the climbers, you know, you talk about their local spot, they're passionate about it. And they're willing to kind of, you know, divvy up a little bit of cash like 20 bucks isn't really that much right um and if all of a sudden you can get a large group of those folks given 20 bucks toward that that resource to that climate area that adds up quick yeah i think the climate the climbing community gets off the hook a little bit because unless you're paying a fee to get in somewhere like the gunks or something or, or red rocks you know the national conservation area or any other place that charges an entrance fee. I mean, we have it pretty, pretty good. I mean, you just walk up to the crag and there you go, as opposed to like the motorized community who pay registration fees and licensing fees for their vehicles. And I think it's so cool that part of those fees goes to conservation. And since climbers often don't have to, uh, um, on a lot of public lands don't have to pay to get in, you know, the, the, this funding has to come from somewhere. You got to pay to play at some point. And I know I'm on to throw down 20 bucks for my area that's for sure yeah i think and a, and a lot of the time like it's it's hard for climbers but to a certain point it's going to be hard for climbers because as, as this happens they're like well i care about indian creek and i care about red rocks and i care about rumney and i care about the red and i care about ten sleep and it's that's what's going to get hard it's like well which one how, do I, how am i going to give to all of them um and i mean at the end of the day we're kind of we're going to need it anyway I think you know climbers are seeing it. They're starting to see the they're starting to see the difference that you know a dollar makes. Um, you know I think we are seeing you know a lot of us do have to we have to pay those those forest pass fees or a park service fee to kind of get in, regardless. But a lot of those fees are just going going back to like just making sure that they can keep the lights on in that forest service district because sadly like their funding at the national level is being cut and a lot of those fees sadly can't go back to the resource as much as we want them to, but They've got to just keep the lights on so that they can actually like provide safety, provide, you know, handle the vault toilets that we always want. Like those things are not cheap. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of folks are really surprised at like, oh, in order to put one of those vault toilets in, like each one is like $30,000 just to install. And then you have to maintain it all the time. Like, oh, we'll put a vault toilet out there. It's like, well, that's, that's fine. But who pays for that long term? And, and how does that, mm -hmm. how does that get covered? So yeah, always, it, all, it, all, it, it all comes back to money. Yep, of course. And yeah, there's just a lot that goes on that, you know, on the surface, 
doesn't look like you know there's a lot of I don't know I wouldn't say there's not a lot of thought going into it, but there's a lot going into putting these toilets in, constructing a campground, putting signage up. There's so much thought that goes on behind it that is not visible on the surface. So you guys just got to remember that, um, that there's more than you think going into all this. Right. Um, man, we've been going for damn near an hour now. This is awesome. I got just a couple more questions and we can start to wrap this thing up. Um, okay. What is the biggest challenge that the stewardship world faces? The biggest challenge for, for, the, for the stewardship realm, I mean, honestly, is, is – is the sheer like need on the ground. I think I, you know, I look at, I look at the whole entire country. There's like 50,000 some odd unique climbing sites. Like that's boulders, that's crags and they all need it. They all need a ton of work and it's going to be really, really hard if the climbing community can't motivate itself to help steward those areas. Yeah. We're always going to have to jump through the, the hoops for the red tape. And I think that that's, you know, we're streamlining that process. We're developing those relationships that, we know are going to help us long-term, right? We're, we're developing ways to kind of put together really good assessment tools, like assess current conditions that we can turn around into solid proposals that, Hey, like you, you're already allowing climbing. Like let's, let's steward that resource at the end of the day. You're not going to close it because we already know you're not going to close it. Let's steward it. Um, so I think pulling the climbing community together to, to one grasp that there is, that there is a concern that they're, but, but also kind of motivating them to being like, hey, like we are the ones that are going to need to do this work long term. Um, there is, a, I have like Julia Geiser, the Salt Lake Climber School, she's always like, oh, there is no they in, in, in climbing area stewardship work. And I totally agree that like the they is us as climbers. And I think one of the biggest challenges is, is getting the entire 7 million some on climbers that there are behind that, behind that understanding and, and, and supporting it and kind of moving it forward. We're always mm -hmm. going to have the red tape. We're always going to need money. Like those are always going to be constants, but the biggest challenge is getting the community invested in it and for, for them to acknowledge that there is a problem, um, that there is a need and that we are part of the solution for it. Yeah. And the access fund has been all over that recently. I feel like there's been several campaigns coming out and have come out in articles in the vertical times and on social media about, deteriorating climbing areas, climbing areas that are in crisis and how you need to play a part in, in facing those challenges, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're trying, we're trying to do the education. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those ones that like we have to reflect upon ourselves and it's a really, really hard one. And, and um, sometimes people are like, Oh, well, you just, the only way to fix it is to limit access. It's like, well, actually like if we set the place up right and we actually put some of the forethought into to how to manage the use and how to direct the use and how to, how to, how to con like control it a little bit, so that people are staying on the same route and that that same route is sustainable to get to the crag. Like we don't have to limit access. People can still go to climb at these sites. Um, you know, we fight a lot with the, Oh, you're building it. So they, they come sort of mentality. It's like, well, no, we're actually building because they're already coming. And we want to make sure that they can continue to come to these sites and have a good experience for the long haul. Yep. They're already here. So do it right. Do it sustainable for everyone else for the future. Yep. What is your final piece of advice for advocates or, or any LCO around the country? I think um, be prepared for the long haul. Um, you know, this is, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. I think, you know, taking, taking things and being like, okay, like, how are we going to do this? This isn't going to take one year. This is going to take five years and, and acknowledging that early on um, and having patience. I think, like, you know, be prepared for the long haul and have patience. These things aren't, immediate fixes. There is a lot of forethought that needs to go into it, whether it's the funding, whether it's the environmental review process, whether it's making sure that we have the right agreements in, in place. It's, it's having a little bit of patience, preparing for the long haul, and thinking the long haul. It's like, what, is, what do we want our climate areas to look like in five years and 10 years? And I think, you know, from an advocate's perspective, it's like, okay, yeah, I really want to fix this spot, but actually, like, why don't I take a step back and think about my whole entire climbing area and what does it need? I think, you know, at the end of the day, if we go to land managers, little band-aids here and there, like, oh, we want to fix this thing. We want to fix this thing. We want to fix this thing. And like come back every single year with a new one. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well as saying like, Hey, like we want to take this whole area. And over the next five years, we want to do the following things and putting it into a real proposal and a real plan. They can bite into that and they can sink their teeth into that, but that takes time and that takes patience and it takes commitment. Um, so I think like those are kind of some of the some of the best things for it. It's like, hey, we do need people to step up, and we do need advocates that are ready 
and invested and ready for the long haul for sure. Awesome, Ty. This has been a great conversation. You're just a wealth of knowledge and I hope, really hope these folks that uh, listen to the show can take a lot away from this episode. So I want to thank you again for your time and uh, we'll definitely chat again soon. I'd love to have you on the show uh, sometime here down the road again. Great. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. All right. See ya. All right, episode three in the bag. Just want to say again that Ty, Ty's the man. He, uh, him, and his teams are just killing it on all fronts, taking care of our climbing area. So, if you see his uh, goldish brown Mercedes Sprinter van or the conservation teams at the Crag, make sure to give him a hug. They definitely deserve it. On next month, uh, next month's episode, I got a couple gentlemen that I'm gonna be chatting with from Texas, talking about climbing in Texas. That's right, you heard that correctly, climbing in Texas. It's gonna be a really interesting conversation. They got a lot going on down there and I think it might surprise you a little bit. So stay tuned, I hope everyone has a happy new year and take care y'all, see you later.